Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that we can come to Thee in the confidence that Thou art our God, ready to minister to our every need. Give us grace to see ourselves as Thou wouldst have us to see ourselves. Give us grace to submit day by day to Thy ministration, to Thy discipline, to thy love, to grow in terms of thy most holy word, and to be used to thee in all our endeavors. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture lesson today is Ezekiel 20, 5 through 20. Ezekiel 20, 5 through 20. Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, in the day when I chose Israel, and lifted up mine hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob, and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt. When I lifted up mine hands unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God. In the day that I lifted up my hand unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt into a land which I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me, and would not hearken unto me. They did not, every man, cast away the abominations of their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. Wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes, and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes. And they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. My Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. But I wrought for my name's sake, that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I brought them out. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness, that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. 
because they despised my judgments and walked not in my statutes but polluted by Sabbath, for their heart went after their idols. <clears throat> Nevertheless, mine eyes spared them from destroying them, neither did I make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And hallow my Sabbath. They shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. <coughs> Our subject today is the Sabbath and Satanism. The 20th chapter of Ezekiel is a curious one at first glance because we see there a very thorough indictment of the people of Israel for two things which are closely linked together. One, that they are still guilty of the abominations of Egypt, and second, they are polluting God's Sabbath. Now we know that at this time, Israel was clearly guilty, or Judah, the southern kingdom, of a great many fearful offenses. Why then did God single out these two things? The first, going back close to a thousand years in their history and declaring that they were continuing, they were perpetrating still all the abominations that they had learned in Egypt. And second, singling out the pollution of the Sabbath rather than many, many other far more serious offenses of the day. Why were these two so significant to God? To understand the significance of this correlation of these two and why Ezekiel in this chapter makes this indictment, it is important for us to analyze Egyptian religion and biblical faith. The Egyptian religion, like all non-biblical religions, was nature worship in essence. The forces of nature were personified. Nature and the power inherent in nature was worshipped. And thus it was that in an Egyptian temple almost any object could be on the altar. It could be an onion, or a beetle, or an image of a crocodile, or of a bird, or of a man. Any object could be the focal point of worship because any object equally represented the deity, the divinity, the godhood which was present in all of nature. 
so that at any and every point you were touching God. You were dealing with God. This, of course, was pantheism of a sort. It asserted that all nature, all being, had one continuous being, which was divine. Now, of course, biblical faith stands in radical contradiction to all this and says, there is the divine being of God, and then the whole universe of created beings. And that man can never speak of having any element of deity or divinity in himself, nor do any creatures in heaven or on earth have any element of divinity. We are creatures. God alone is God. Thus, biblical faith has this discontinuity of being. Now, the Sabbath was introduced by God at the time of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. There had been no Sabbath prior to that time. And Ezekiel tells them God gave them his Sabbath to indicate his deliverance as well as to set forth for them the way wherein they should walk. The Sabbath signified that man was to cease from his labors because it was not his work that saved him, but the work of God. And so on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day, Men do not work because they witness thereby, it is not what I do that is going to save me, but what God has done. And second, the Sabbath is that day when we draw nourishment and strength from God to go forth and to manifest that salvation, to apply that victory which God has already won for us. Thus the Sabbath is a separation, and then it is a separation that it may be an application of the victory and of the deliverance. But one of the characteristics of Israel from the time it was saved was that while they believed in God and knew indeed that he had saved them, knew that he had performed some tremendous and mighty works of deliverance, they believed even more in nature. And their perspective was basically this. We are surrounded day after day by a world of nature and of men, a very powerful world of nature and a world of very powerful natural forces. 
Indeed, there is a God, but he's way off yonder. And occasionally he comes down and does things as he did to our forefather Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and as he did for us when he delivered us from Egypt. But most of the time he leaves us alone, and the power we have to reckon with is the power of the world of nature and of men. So that while they believed in God's reality and power, they believed even more truly in nature's reality and power. And this was a significant fact. Because it meant that they were going to move in terms of the greater power, and for them the greater power was nature. It was the more constant power. It was the power they had to deal with every day. And indeed, this attitude characterizes many so-called Christians. Oh yes, God is God, and I believe the stories of the Bible, but they're very remote to me. And I have to leave, uh, live in a real world. What I have to reckon with every day is that real world of nature and of men. God isn't going to step in and do anything about it, so I have to move in terms of these people and this world. This whole world would collapse into nothingness at the word of God. It was brought out of nothing by his word, and it would disappear instantaneously into nothingness if God but spoke the word. And he is the only reality. The perspective of these Hebrews thus was in effect a kind of Satanism. Because it was not the power of God that they worshipped, but the powers in an evil, fallen world. There is a religion of Satanism, of which you'll find something in some encyclopedias, the religion of the Yezidi. The Yezidis, Y-E-Z-I-D-I-S, are found predominantly in the Middle East. They have had an influence on many, many groups that are prevalent in Europe and America. But these people are not too widely known because they teach strictly to themselves. And certain parts of the Middle East within various countries will be Yezidi territory. So that even on the maps, although there will be villages and cities in that area, nothing will appear. It is unknown territory. Outsiders do not go in there. Very few people, as a result, have had any 
dealing with Yezidis. The Yezidis do not doubt that there is a God. They do not doubt that God is good and wholly righteous. But their attitude is that because God is, is good, he is therefore harmless. That goodness, righteousness, is of necessity impotence. And therefore, the essence of realistic living is to worship Satan, whether you like him or not. And so they build underground sanctuaries, usually, in order to worship Satan because you have to make terms with the real power in the universe. And the more a man becomes good, the more he joins God in being powerless and impotent. This is Satan. And isn't there a great deal of Satanism around us? A belief in the impotence of righteousness? Satanism is very prevalent today. It does have its cult, and occultism is shot through with Satanism. Communism certainly is a form of Satanism, but unfortunately we find Satanism very, very widespread among many people who call themselves conservatives and who call themselves Christians. Why? Regularly, I find people coming to me and telling me, why is it that you don't warn people about this or that conspiracy? And rarely speak of them or do not speak of them at all. And shouldn't you speak about the Illuminati? or about the ADL, or about this, that, and the other group. And they're ready to tell me all the things that I should say about these groups and a great many others. And they're ready to pass on to me all kinds of literature, most of which I have seen many, many times, about how powerful these people are and how they have through the centuries controlled from behind history and are controlling history today and are going to control it tomorrow. My answer is that they are in danger of worshiping faith because they are saying that history is in the hands of Satan is governed by evil. And even as they try to alert people to it, they are, they are in effect worshipping it as the real force, the real power in history. 
according to the word of God, the very wrath of man shall praise him. All the evil, all the raging, the conspiring of the wicked is totally governed by the absolute power of God and goes not a step beyond his foreordination. It is totally in his hands. The Council of Jerusalem declared in Acts 17, 15, 18, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. It is blasphemy, therefore, to say of these conspiracies, which are real, most of them, that they are controlling past, present, and future. And this is what Israel is doing. This was the abomination of Egypt. For the Egyptians believed that the natural forces and the human forces of this world governed history. And God gave them the Sabbath that they might come apart for a time weekly for one purpose, to rejoice in the salvation that God had given them. To know that history was in the hands of God who destroyed Egypt with all its pretensions. And will destroy every evil power that erects itself in defiance of God. So the purpose of the Sabbath is a reminder that God is our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer, and our judge. And so we gather together to rest in his victory. To sing songs of praises when we are in formal worship. And the theme of all the hymns of the church is victory, is it not? Go through the verses, for example. One of the most popular, if not the most popular, onward Christian soldiers. Every verse sings out of victory, as is all of Scripture. And it is in terms of this but we are to move, not in terms of the powers of darkness. And so the purpose of the Sabbath is to gather together, to study his word, to give thanks unto him for his victory, for his so great salvation, and then to go out and day by day throughout every week to apply that victory to every area of life. The Sabbath, therefore, was given to man as an antidote to Satan. The declared was weekly that all 
power and dominion belongs to God and that we are to rest in his victory. For this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Therefore, each Sabbath should be a time of rest and refreshing unto our souls and to our bodies. Not merely a physical rest, but incidental, but primarily a spiritual rest. Rest in terms of his victory. Therefore, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee that thou hast called us unto victory. And that as we gather around thy word, the word that thou dost speak to us is the word of victory. And the summons to us is day by day throughout every week to go forth and to apply unto all life thy victory. Make us resolute and bold, our Father, in terms of this our calling. As the keynote of our faith and of our lives may be neither tribulation nor defeat, but victory in and through the so great salvation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Before we have our first question, I'd like to call attention to one item in the text which is repeated two or three times when God speaks of Canaan as the land flowing with milk and honey which is the glory of all lands. This sounds strange to us because we've all seen pictures of Palestine and it doesn't look like that kind of a glorious land. Dry, barren hills, an eroded country, <clears throat> it doesn't look too good. And it isn't. Because it isn't the land that God gave to Israel. Because God declared through the prophets, including Ezekiel, that the land would be cursed if they continued in their faithlessness as they did after the captivity. And so that land, which was once a particularly rich land, wooded, with a tremendous amount of wildlife, lush vegetation and wildflowers, streams that flowed continually, is now an almost treeless, dry, barren area. 
hard for us indeed to realize that once all of Arabia was forest land. And today there isn't even sand there. It's eroded down to the bare rock, much of it. And it is because it has experienced the curse of God. And Babylon, of course, is the same. Babylon was a city set in many waters. Today it's dry, barren, desert area. Yes. When you're talking about the devil was here for last night, maybe a year ago, they had a cult in England that was really worshiping Satan. And they were doing, uh, I don't know if they were going to do you or black monks or whatever they were doing. Yes, in England there is quite openly uh, an association of witches. They have written about their faith, and uh, it is definitely uh, a worship of evil. There's a great deal of that. There are black masses performed regularly in churches desecrated to that purpose, and this is spreading very rapidly in this country. The church life in England, of course, is virtually dead. The Church of England today has very few people attending. Ten and fifteen years ago, most of them came to have their children baptized, but even that is dropping off. I was interested recently to read, I believe it was in Harper's for a couple of months ago, an article on the church at Woolwich by an Episcopal rector who was the uh, rector of that church. Now, the Bishop of Woolwich is uh, John Robinson, who wrote Honest to God, who believes in the death of God type of theology and the numerality. And it's significant that this church was virtually deserted, quite a sizable building. They put in quite a few thousand into renovating it. They made one part of it an espresso bar and so on in order to make it a community center. And they gathered together a sizable team of uh, rectors to cover the entire area, a sizable community. Now they have just barely 50 who come to that huge sanctuary. And it's because there's nothing there. And this is true throughout England, and these Satanist groups actually have a far greater hold on the people than the Christian faith does. It is only in background a Christian country. It isn't in reality. And this is happening throughout Western Europe. It's going to happen here very rapidly because as this new theology is taking over in the churches in this country, there is a very rapid drop in the attendance at your mainline churches. Since 1960, the drop 
it has been increasing at a marked degree, it will continue to accelerate. Because they have nothing to offer and it's coming home to people. And they are beginning to realize, too, they have nothing as a result of all their years of church going. And they're not sure they want anything. Yes? I think, yeah. Your lesson today, asking my question on this one, is called Getting the Feel of Body Awareness. And this is in our paper, Monday, April 25th, 1966. And it has to do with nonverbal sensitivity loss. Mm-hmm. One thing is now, this body awareness, and yet they're tied in with nature, they're going to make these walks and contemplate. This is along the same line, which is not the Yes. Uh, all kinds of research are being conducted now supposedly to apprehend the hidden powers in nature and to develop your hidden secret powers and they bring people closer and closer to outright Satanism in this sort of thing is that what they mean with LSD when they going to look into the heart of the road, so to speak, and they take the LSD drug and just look at it? Yes. Now, we can explain it by uh, using an analogy. When we speak of grace, we are speaking of power from above. But, the conclusion that these people are coming to is, yes, but why not power from the This is where real power is. And so they are denying the word of God, the source of power from above, God, the triune God, and they are going to explore the sources of power from below. And they are restoring magic. They are restoring uh, restoring every kind of occultist and demonic cult. They are actually talking in terms of cannibalism. Now, this was in something one of you handed me recently from the L.A. Times about a group of uh, researchers here in Southern California. I don't remember which university, Caltech or... UCLA or USC, who are conducting experiments with worms, and they were training worms to go through certain problems, and then they were taking the worms that had learned these lessons and grinding them up and feeding them to the other worms, and they claimed that they learned from something. In other words, they absorbed the memory of these worms they ate. And, of course, uh, they were jumping to conclusions because their evidence, I'm told, actually didn't prove anything. So what they expressed was a bit wishful thinking. But do you realize what that means? That the cannibals are right. If you want to get power, eat someone who is uh, a powerful man. And you get his strength as well as yours. But... The fact that a group of scientists would seriously spend thousands of dollars in such research indicates that the demonic aspect of their thinking. Um, that I think was more uh, 
Ridges and Middle West that work was begun in Wisconsin, I believe, financed by the Encyclopedia Britannica, and carried on later at the Stanford Research Institute up north. Oh, thank you. Then it was not Southern California. It was Wisconsin. The second part, I'd like to make a, just one brief comment on the, on the, uh, on the witches. They invaded uh, Los Angeles. I was uh, doing this out with a, with a book dealer a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me that um, there are 250 witches in, Los, in, uh, in Santa Monica, and they, uh, they divide themselves up into seven coves. I think you call them coves. Yes, coves are covens. C-O-V-E-N-S or C-O-V-E. Uh, yeah, well, coves they are in, in Los Angeles, and they, and they uh, perform their sorceries up in the Santa Monica Mountains. They, there's one of those canyons up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps the Encyclopedia Britannica has in mind with this uh, experiment that the Britannica would be good uh, eating. Talking about the Sabbath, and you said it, the Sabbath that you said today, I was under the impression, of course, that he didn't call it the Sabbath in Genesis when he was creating it on the seventh day of rest, and I thought that was the Sabbath. It was the creation Sabbath, you're right. But as far as men were concerned, a Sabbath was not instituted until Passover. So there is no mention until you come to the Passover. Well, the word Sabbath, yes. But I, I don't know, my mother always taught me it was in Genesis. Yes, in Genesis 1, you have the seventh day when creation was ended and God rested. But as far as being instituted as a separate day of worship for men, you do not get it, and it doesn't appear in the Bible, until the first Passover in Egypt. And God says in uh, this passage through Ezekiel that he gave them his Sabbath at that time. But the institution of the Sabbath was was the first Passover. This was their day of salvation. And that's why our Sabbath is not Saturday, because our day of redemption is not the Passover of Egypt, as it was with Israel. Our day of salvation is the day of resurrection. So that the first day of the week is our uh, Sabbath. Well, in the beginning, uh, starting with Genesis, I said this so many years ago and I'm studying over again and I understand a lot more now. But in with the I think horrible things that are written with what took place was this the leading up to the flood, why they were destroyed, the cut of the world before and to the people. Yes, the world before the flood, of course. Uh, was a world of far superior conditions materially and physically. When men lived to be eight, nine hundred, almost a thousand years old. 
And having this longevity, they were taking advantage of the fact that the day of reckoning of death was long ways off, and they were living in utter heedlessness of God. And so God destroyed that world, and we have the more limited lifespan. And, and uh, of course, evil, all the same, reasserted itself because man was fallen and is fallen. But God began his plan of salvation, and through his chosen line, the line of Abraham, instituted uh, this uh, program. Yes? We had a discussion the other evening in, uh, in Genesis describes the creation of Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. And they had two sons, and then the world was populated. Mm-hmm. And this would lead to lots to your imagination or credibility, you know, you want to put it. Would you explain that? Yes, because the scripture only mentions uh, those who are of significance to the narrative rather than all births. You have to realize that they had many, many children. After all, living as they did for 900 or more years, as Adam and Eve did, and having a different type of life condition. Uh, the number of children they had was quite numerous. As a result, uh, when uh, Cain and Abel were well along in years and were farming and so on and uh, running their stock, uh, there were other children, a great many of them, in the area. Children of Adam and Eve. But they're not of any significance to the narrative, so they're not mentioned, except for Seth, who is mentioned because the line of the faithful from Seth to Christ is his line, and therefore he is important. Is that where they got their wives from their sisters? Yes, from their sisters. The beginning, yes. These were other daughters of Adam and Eve that these men took as wives. And genetically, it was all right at that time because there was no problem of inbreeding genetically. Because, you see, since all the potentialities of the human race were present in Adam and Eve, the gene potential of each of them was such that... uh, their children were scarcely related. You see, our gene potential, our heredity, is a more concentrated one. But theirs had all the potentialities of all races. And so, for a time, there was no law against such marriages. And then, of course, it was instituted. Seth is an Egyptian name for one of the gods. Is there any connection to that? Yes. Uh, Seth and 
Shem are related names, and this was the line of promise, and the Egyptians made it uh, to stand for the devil, because they rejected the faith that was involved in the line of uh, Seth and Shem. Yes. Uh, would you comment on the uh, giving up the yoke that Christ and the cross and Luke's account of the death of Judas and Jared and the first thunder and the Yes. Well, that is an expression, an idiom in the Greek for uh, dying and for the separation of body and soul. So that according to biblical faith, when we die, there is a separation of body and soul, and the soul goes to heaven or to hell, as the case may be. And this is what is referred to as giving up the ghost. Then, of course, at the end of the world, we put on a resurrection body. Now, in the interim, between the time of death and the new creation, we are spoken of as resting in the Lord. In other words, it's not a time of action. But with the new creation and the resurrection body, the scripture says, and his servants shall serve him, but in a glorious universe in which there is no curse, so that we resume activity but activity without any curse or any burden to it. Well, I was under the impression that the uh, soul could actually die when the body was still alive. The you know, death uh, could occur and you know I, I don't quite get the point. Could you repeat that? In other words, that uh, a person could lose his soul while still alive. Oh, yes. The sense uh, in which that is said, and you're right, is spiritual. In other words, he can be spiritually dead. He can be spiritually lost as far as God is concerned. But as far as the physical death is concerned, it doesn't refer to that. In other words, the termination of existence is not what is meant by it. But the termination of any relationship to God, or being dead in relationship to God, is the better way of putting it. Does that uh, clarify it, or does it make it more confused? Well, the only part that confuses me, if you had a uh, dead soul, such as a beatnik with a and uh, would the soul remain uh, latent until physical death, by the time you give up the ghost? He is alive as a soul, but he is dead in relationship to God. So it's not a literal death, but a figurative death. In other words, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, you're dead to Johnson. Uh, he can't talk to you. There's no meaningful relationship between you and Johnson. So you, you can say in a sense, you're dead to him. Certainly I am dead to Johnson. 
he was in the same hotel with me this week in Houston, Texas, and was a little too close. <laughs> now, in this sense, when we speak of dead souls, we're speaking of them being dead to God. And every sinner is, in some sense, spiritually dead. He is a dead soul, and he is brought to life by Jesus Christ. But he is very much alive as he deals with the world of sin and as he deals with Satan. He's alive in that area. Does that help? Yes. No, I didn't. I was very much dismayed, since you mentioned Billy Graham, to talk to one man who went to the presidential breakfast where Billy Graham spoke to Johnson and the assembled congressmen and senators. And he had two verses as his... I've come not to bring peace but a sword, and I have come to cast fire upon the earth, would that it be kindled. And this minister said he's still not gotten over the shock of that meeting, because this fire which Jesus came to cast upon the earth, and this sword to divide men was the civil rights movement. If that isn't a perversion of scripture, I've never heard of one. There in Luke, I can't, uh, just at this moment, but I can locate them easily. <coughs> Any other questions? Uh, along the line of the, uh, the Arab turning of Canaan, what have you, Goshen really uh, is more or less kept its fertile soil, I I couldn't say, although I would say this. I don't know to what extent it is still uh, fertile. Uh, it has undoubtedly gone downhill. However, the whole Nile Valley and adjacent areas are one of the two most fertile areas of the world. The San Joaquin Valley and the Nile Valley. These are the prize areas agriculturally in the world. And it's significant, the difference in the life around the two. And the wealth that this produces and the poverty you see there. However, Egypt as a whole has gone downhill from uh, ancient times. And it's no longer the land it once was. In fact, the whole of North Africa has. We do know definitely that North Africa at the time of Abraham was a very heavily populated area. The Sahara, I mean, not just the coastal places. And the mountains were well forested. And it was an area of orchards and vineyards. And there are a few books that you can get in libraries that have explored some of these areas and uh, called attention to uh, the 
traces of the civilizations that once existed there. But they destroyed the area, they stripped the mountains of trees, overgrazed the countryside, and eroded the land and it turned into drifting sand and bare rock. It's a staggering thing, but even as late as the uh, Roman era, we know, of course, that Carthage was a powerful empire based in that area, and there were areas that were still very rich and fertile. It was still fairly rich in some limited areas at the time of the uh, movement of the Scandinavians and Germanic tribes in North Africa. And they moved there because it was so desirable. And they helped further the trend because they just took over the uh, raising habits and ways and abuse of the land that the people they conquered had. And some of them are squatting there now, much poorer than their ancestors who conquered the land and far more stupid. Their ancestors at least were able people. The Berber tribes, B-E-R-B-E-R, are descendants, among others, of some of these Northern European peoples. That whole area is just devastated now. And the interesting thing is, there are many, many parts of uh, Western USA that don't get any more rainfall than the Sahara does. Some parts of the Sahara will get up to 10 inches of rain. And uh, look at its condition. It's been destroyed. Do you give much credence to the uh, Roman history of falling apart in soil and destroying the sea? Yes. yes, they did deliberately. This was a Roman policy. They did it to Jerusalem, too. But and there were other policies that led to the destruction. One of the things that destroys land is the destruction of private property. And private property of a small family-sized basis, where people use the soil with respect. And they got, they have gained the soil through hard work, not because it's been handed to them. Because Mexico has destroyed vast areas of agricultural land by giving the land to the peasants. It broke up the rich estates in the twenties. Five hundred families of the old Spaniards owned a good deal of the farmland in Mexico. And it was beautiful farmland then. Now it's been divided and uh, 500 acres is the largest holding and most of them are of a very few acres. They've increased their production. They've done it by steadily destroying the soil. They've stripped the mountainsides in many areas and in not too many years they're going to face a tremendous crisis because of the 
devastation their policy has wrought. They gave the land to small owners who had never earned it, didn't have the capacity to maintain it. And this is the kind of thing that has destroyed the earth over and over again, where you have a destruction of a family-owned, uh, <coughs> religiously-oriented private property. Over and over again, this has been the case. And it's certainly true now. We hear a great deal about soil conservation and reforestation, but the worst areas, by and large, in the country today are in the national forests. Your best forests in the West are warehouser forests. They're not the national forests. And the state of Maine, which is virtually all privately owned forest land, there is more acreage in forests there now than when the white man first landed, and it's in better forests. The trees are in better condition. And that's one reason why the federal government is trying to take over a great deal of Maine and make it national forest, because it's an offense to them that stands there. Once it becomes a national forest, if you are a powerful politician, you can run thousands of head of cattle on that land all year round without owning an acre of land of your own. If you know how to pull the right strings. You can get all kinds, not only grazing rights, but cutting rights, if you can pull the right wires. And this destroys the land. But in private ownership, it's maintained. In the uh, relation of this subject we're discussing, India has what well, we consider a non-Christian attitude, and however, I do not remember of any particular desert. They do have floods, but the people own, except for the Maharajas, apparently the people uh, retain the land very good point India is an exception to what I've said but it in a sense proves the point because here you have the reverse because they believe in reincarnation and they believe in killing nothing because you might be killing your cousin or your mother or your grandmother they therefore allow the wild animals to take over their farms and destroy them. And they will move out when uh, the man-eating tigers move into an area. As a result, the jungle reclaims a great deal of agricultural land regularly. And uh, this is a major problem. Some areas have been eroded in India that were held by non-Hindus that is, people who were, say, Muslims or held some other faith. But where you have the Hindu faith, uh, instead of developing the land, they, they allow nature to drive them out. And they end up in the same position, more or less. They starve. Maharajas apparently do not do much agricultural growing. No. They simply tax the tenants 
and get their income that way. Of course, they are virtually finished now. India has taken over, to all practical intents, their lands and gives them a kind of a pension. When they die off, that's it. Along that line, the uh, <coughs> inventory of cattle in the United States runs around 100 to 105 million. And India has close to 300 million in cattle, and that's a larger form also. And the amount of grain that it takes to feed these, aside from the raw land, is tremendous. And then there's another point. Uh, we are shipping a fantastic amount of wheat to India to keep them alive. Uh, wheat and rice, various grains. But do you know that the rats of India are eating annually far more grain than we ship over? But they don't kill the rats? That's the insanity of the situation. And this is what... No, they will not kill. They will not kill any living thing. In reincarnation, you see, you reincarnate upward or downward in terms of uh, the way you live. So that you can go down, down, down if you've lived a bad life, and then you progress up, up, up. Then... Uh, for example, if you're a poor man in this reincarnation and you live very, very devoutly, you'll be a somewhat richer man and maybe you'll get to be a Maharaja, but the way most of the Maharajas have behaved, they probably get reincarnated as rats. But finally, you reach oblivion. And Mahatma Gandhi felt, because he had been, he believed, so very, very holy, that this was going to be the last reincarnation for him and he was going to be delivered into nirvana, total death. That was his hope. Well, I think we know where he is. Oh, uh, there's an announcement here. On KNX Radio, 8 p.m. Tuesday, Dr. Granville Knight, M.D. of Santa Monica, will debate a dentist on fluoridation. And uh, since this is coming up in the Los Angeles area, we should be concerned with the matter as well as expressing our opinions. <laughs>